Our topic this week is from the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 9, Corporate Repentance. Ezra 9 verse 1, when these things were done, and these things that it's referring to are the events that took place in chapter 7 and chapter 8, because the first six chapters of Ezra took place before Ezra was even born. So he was just writing historically, and so the majority of the book of Ezra you know, it didn't even have to do with Ezra. He wasn't, again, even born. But it helped to lead up to the events that took place in his life. So in chapter 7, he writes about uh, how God used him. Well, doesn't specifically mention using him, but I have no doubt that used him in influencing King Artaxerxes to write a decree, the final decree, the capstone decree, the third decree of the decrees from King Cyrus, King Darius, and then King Artaxerxes, allowing us to... Uh, to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem, to give us our own authority, so kind of a little country within a country, ability to have judges and to rule and to uh, legislate within our own borders. And so, and then, and then chapter 8 is on their trip, uh, Ezra left, led a delegation out of Persia, out of Sushan and that area, uh, Persia to Jerusalem which was still under the Medo-Persia kingdom. And as they traveled, only several thousand came with them, unfortunately. And even though this was the third decree, allowing people in mass to leave with blessings and with financing from the kingdom, not everybody took them up on that. And so many stayed behind. But he did come with several thousands and, again, uh, lots of offerings and, and, and money and gold and items for Jerusalem and blessing with the continued upbuilding and restoring of it. And so in the five-month travel, they get to Jerusalem, and they spend three days, I guess, probably recuperating, and then offering offerings in the temple for forgiveness of sins, burnt offerings, sin offerings. And then that's where then chapter 9 picks up. So when these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the Kohanim and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Termites, the Megabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, and any other ites that you can think of, right? And so they were all still there, which is kind of interesting uh, because we're now several hundred years um, well, more than that, maybe close to a thousand years since Joshua came into the land and here these groups are still there and they weren't, shouldn't have been. Now eventually they disappear off the face of the earth, all of them except the Egyptians and even the Egyptians go through a different stage. Today's Egyptians are not the same as, as the ancient Egyptians. But uh, the, the rest of them, whether it's during the Greeks or during the Romans, uh, they're no more, none of those groups. Uh, exist anymore. So at this time, uh, three different groups of people have left Babylon and come to Jerusalem for the building, and they've left one problem, Babylon, come to Jerusalem, and yet are still living in Babylon. They're still living in sin, still participating in the abominations that are done by the pagans all around them. This is a horrible, 
thing. I mean, after all those 70 years in captivity, and we're finally able to go back, and then over this period of time, those three decrees take place over about another 70 or so year period of time. And so Ezra comes, and, he, and these leaders come to him and tell him, look, the people of Israel and the Kohanim and the Levites, they, they're not separating themselves. They're participating in the abominations of the land. And sometimes that happens with us as well today. We leave the world, we come out of the world, we come out of the lifestyle that we're normal for our lives, that is natural for our lives, the addictions and the abuses and the selfishness and the greed and, and the carnal nature and the carnal desires, and we, and we leave the open sinfulness of that, which with its morality that's constantly changing and constantly lowering and lowering and lowering, lowering, and we come to a godly state and we surrender our lives to the Lord and we become part of a fellowship and, 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 and our lives change in a different lifestyle and outwardly and for all intensive purposes we've, we've made some changes in our lives but sometimes we continue in other sinful behaviors that are attached to the carnal nature. So we might not be cursing and blaspheming we might just be gossiping and, well, we might not be greedy. We might still be selfish and proud. Well, we might not be lusting and committing adultery and, and fornicating every other weekend. We might be participating in secret lustful sins of self-sexual abuses or pornography and other type of forms of still within the world, still living in sinful lifestyles of our carnal, selfish nature. And God has called us out of Babylon, out of sin, not just to a different group, not just to a club, but to godliness, to enter into heaven. And it's a growth process, but sometimes we just plateau, and that's what happened here. So they left one sinful state, came into a, a better state, building the temple, having sacrifices, having salvation offered to them, having forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial offering, but not receiving the power of the Holy Spirit to transform their lives totally and to change every aspect of their lives, their heart, their motives, their desires, through and through. And that's what God can do for us. It's a growing process. We can't settle with stagnating in our spiritual walk. We need to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord, continue to grow more and closer to him. Throughout our lives, and I believe throughout eternity, we'll be learning more about God and growing in his graces and growing in abilities and talents and usefulness for his glory. And so how much more so in the here and now? It's more than just, well, I am forgiven now. So we need to also be sanctified and growing in holiness. And throughout our lives, God will reveal more to us as we surrender and allow him and give him permission to show us what is in our hearts. As David prayed, search me and try me and see if there be any other wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We can continually be praying that type of a prayer and God will continue to show us the next sin in our life that he wants us to remove. Thankfully, in his mercy, he doesn't show it all at one time. We'd be overwhelmed. 
When we first came to him, he showed us everything. We couldn't handle it. So in mercy, he shows us one thing at a time. And every time he gives us victory over the next something, he will then show us another, if we give him permission and allow him to. He'll show us another area where we can grow. And we can confess that, receive his forgiveness because of the sacrifice of the Messiah in our behalf. And we can receive the power of the Holy Spirit to gain victory over that sin. And then he'll show us another thing in love and in mercy for our own good. And he can remove that as well. And that's how the process needs to continue. Not just the self-satisfied, I'm okay now, I accepted the Messiah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven and just leave it at that. And still living like the Amorites and the Moabites and the Hittites. Not good enough just to live like a human being. God wants us to take on the divine nature. His spirit filling us. Let this mind be in you that was in Yeshua the Messiah. That's so much a higher calling than just being part of a new group. Religious, religious services. And participating in religious activities. He wants to fill us with godly characters. Godly characteristics. All the way through. Not just looking nice on the outside. But totally transformed inside and out that it shows forth outwardly. A lot of times how we live as professed believers is no different than the rest of the world. People at work might not even know the difference. People in our neighborhood might not notice any difference. We're watching the same garbage they're watching, reading the same garbage they're reading, participating in the same activities, caught up in maybe other addictions. So we transferred one addiction for now, you know, an entertainment addiction or a sports addiction or, you know, some other type of a thing that's, that's clean and and, and noble, but it's still taking up all our time and all our resources. We need to have a balanced walk with the Lord, surrender to Him, and experiencing joy in the Lord, and having times of rest and exercise and relaxation, but also in everything, surrender to Him, and walking under His banner, and not tied down and held down to anything of this world, that he is all and that we surrender all to him. Right? We might not have the idols of the world, but we can idolize our car, we can idolize our children, we can idolize our spouse, we can idolize and make an idol out of our house. Who has our devotion, who has our time, who has the lion's share of our influence and our finances? Where is our attention caught up? Is our goal heaven? Is our mind in heaven and on heavenly things? And we don't want to be so heavenly, you know, caught up that we're for no usefully good. We need to be ministering. We need to live here as Abraham just passing through, looking for a city and builder whose maker is God and not get comfortable in this land that we're living in. And that's what happened. They left Persia, moved to Jerusalem, and got comfortable with the surrounding around them. And that's a dangerous place to be. And verse 2 tells us specifically what the problem was. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. 
So the specific problem was intermarrying with those not of their faith, not of their beliefs. And it's interesting because the first one said it was the leaders who came. And now it's saying the leaders are foremost. So there was two groups of leaders. There were those leaders who were true leaders wanting to follow God and wanting to live for God. And there were those leaders who were leaders in name only. And who were participating in the sins of the world. And so the one group of leaders, Ezra, he's only been there four days now. <laughs> Three days, it's kind of re recouping from jet lag, offered the sacrifice, and they see, well, this man, godly man, dedicated man, came and brought these offerings for the Lord, influenced the king, and they might have been wanting to talk to somebody, but the foremost leaders are leading out in the sin, and they're not having an influence, and they see, well, here's someone, maybe he can help us. And so they unburden on him, and they tell him about the other leaders and the Kohenim and the Levites and the people that are committing this sin and mixing with unbelievers in their marriage. And this is a sin that goes all the way back. And it is a sin that will go all the way to the future. And so here we are in the book of Ezra, almost kind of in the middle of time, and we see it was a problem there. And it's a very important problem and a big problem now, of course, there's the sexual relations, as mentioned here, but there's also the spiritual aspect as well, the spiritual intermarrying and becoming attached to. Where the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is talking specifically about marriage. But also, we can do so in our business affairs, in our hearts, and in our uh, associations, in our, 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 our vows, and our commitments and make people of this world and things of this world more important than God. An example of that is we can be so dedicated to our job that we break God's law so that we're obedient to our boss. God needs to come first and foremost over all things. And that goes for a spouse as well. If a spouse is asking us to disobey God, we need to obey God rather than humans. And so this is talked about as far as last day events and in the beginning in the book of Matthew 24, verse 37. It says, as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Noah goes all the way back to chapter 6 of Genesis, and so will be the coming of the Son of Man, so till the very end. He says the same things will be taking place, that were taking place in Noah's day, will be taking place at the very end of time. So let's look at what exactly was taking place in Noah's day. Chapter 6, verse 1 of Genesis. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives of all whom they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. There were giants on the earth, and when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children. The Lord, saw, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. So we have verse 8, Noah coming on the scene, Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then the whole Noah story takes place over the next few chapters. 
So everything before this is what's leading up to the Noah account. So when Yeshua said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be, these first seven verses tell us what it was like in the days of Noah. So working our way backwards, verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and then it just goes on repeating that, how upset God is and that he's going to destroy man over the face, from the face of the earth and, and how he's displeased. So now we're really only limited to the first four verses to describe to us what was going on in the days of Noah that will also be the major problem in the last days. Men began to multiply on the face of the earth. The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives of all whom they chose. In verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not only strive with man. So verse 3 is basically also telling us that God's not pleased with this. So now we're down to really just three verses telling us what exactly was going on that God was not pleased with that brought about the flood, that brought about the destruction of the earth, which will also be the sin in the last day. And it tells us twice what it is. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives of all whom they chose. Now it does mention, verse 4, that there were giants in the earth. Now in the time of Noah, we're only, let's see, Abraham, Adam and Eve, then they had a child, Seth. They had lots of children. <laughs> you know, 900 years, I'm sure they had lots of children. But uh, Seth is mentioned. Well, Seth lives till just before Noah's born. Just a few years before he's born. So then Seth's children lived into Noah's day. So Adam and Eve's grandchildren knew Noah. Noah was at least 100 years old when, 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 when Seth's child, I think Enos, uh, died. And so Noah was well of uh, you know, informed of what it was like in the Garden of Eden from just two passages back. Adam telling Enos, Enos telling Noah. So yes, I believe that Adam and Eve were giants. I believe God created them much greater, much beautiful, or much you know, more perfect than we are, much stronger than we are. And so we're just, again, just a few hops from that time. And so I have no doubt that Adam and Eve's grandchildren were much larger and as the ages uh, were going on. Uh, so there were giants in the land. So that's just a statement of fact, I think, is being said there. I mean, there were giants in the land way into David's day, right? We had Goliath, right? So it's just saying there were giants in the land. So that's not really so much. That's not so unique. Adam and Eve were giants. So, uh, uh, Goliath was a giant. So it's just a statement. There were giants in the land. So our key here is the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives of whoever they chose. And then in verse 4, and when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children. So the key is to know who the sons of God are and who are the daughters of men. Now, some people have come, up with the, come to the conclusion that this is referring to angels having sex with women. Now, We've read it again several times. I mean, I've just kind of reviewed it several times here. Anyone see the word angels there? No, there's no angels mentioned specifically there, right? It's the sons of God and the daughters of men. So who are the sons of God? 
Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. So who are the sons of God? Believers. Believers are sons of God. Right? When we're born, well, Adam and Eve were created, right? and you do the genealogy back from, from Yeshua and in, in the genealogies that's given there, I forget if it's the one Matthew or the one Luke, it takes you all the way back, uh, son of, son of, son of, son of, all the way back to Adam, who was the son of God. Right? And so he was the original son of God on this earth. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and they sold themselves out to Satan, and then the rest of us are born under Satan's image, still with some of God's image still mixed in there, but for the most part, our natures are carnal. That's why it's easier to sin than to do what is right. And that's why we have to be born again. We have to be born from our carnal nature, from Satan, to be born anew with God's nature back into God's image. Right? That's the whole plan of salvation, to take us from one out of Babylon into God's kingdom. And so we're born again, and when we're born again, we are then sons and daughters of God. We're adopted by him. We become his children, and we are the sons and daughters of God. Now, I believe the angels were created by God, and they could be sons of God as well. You know, the angels, the sons of God sang for joy at the creation, and all that's fine too, but they're still obedient to God. The fallen angels wouldn't be sons of God anymore. They'd be demons of the devil, not sons of God. Sons of God are believers. Sons of God are Obedience, sons of God, are surrendered to the Lord God. So we are the sons and daughters of God. So if believers are sons and daughters of God, then who are the daughters of men? Unbelievers. Unbelievers, exactly. That simple. It's that simple. And so this is the same story that we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible, is what we're seeing in the book of Ezra. The sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. And it can go either way. It could be the daughters of God intermarrying with the sons of men. You know, either way. But it's this intermarrying that's the very problem that's taking place in Ezra. What was Samson's problem? He goes to his parents, I saw a girl in Timnah, and she's beautiful in my eyes, and I want her. And they say, no, she's not an Israelite. Why can't you find a nice girl from Israel? He says, no, I want her. That's what it says. The daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took Wives of whomever they chose. Whoever their hearts desired. Well, it's easier for the women of this world to show themselves more seductuously and, and uh, flauntingly and draw after the lusts and carnal natures of someone. And so they went after whom they wanted. Not who God wanted for them. Not whom was right. Not whom God chose. They were intermarrying unfaithfully. Again, just like Samson, Solomon had this problem. Look at what it did. We had King Saul, United Nation. We had King David, even a greater United Kingdom. Solomon comes along, our third king. He intermarries with women of the world. And right after him, the kingdom ends. It divides. It splits irreparable for the rest of history. And we never have a united 12 tribes again like it. 
That sin, that one sin ruined the nation. And we see this problem in Ezra's day, and Yeshua is prophesying this is going to be the problem at the end as well. Both physically and spiritually, mixing with the world, partaking of worldly things, the children of God mixing with the children of this world, the things of this world. We need to mix in order to witness, in order to be an influence, but not to be influenced by, not to be brought down. And often that's what happens in mixed marriages. Very, very rare for the godly person to bring up the ungodly person. Most often, the ungodly person ends up bringing down the godly person, because the godly person is already compromised from the beginning. And so once one compromise takes place, the next it's so much easier for compromise after compromise to take place. And even if the godly person never gives up their faith, it's never what God really fully intended it to be. They're not able to fully live out because they now become one. The two become one flesh. And if they become one flesh, if we become one flesh with ungodliness, it's going to bring us down. We can't continue and maintain our walk with the Lord. Again, as we saw what happened to Solomon and with Samson. What God could have done with Solomon, what God could have done with Samson. Strength and wisdom. And yet they compromised. And it ended tragically for both of them. And the big problem in the book of Ezra. And the big problem in the world today. It's a big problem among believers today. Again, both on the physical side and on the spiritual side. That's why he says, be equally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked. Right? So we have stories from Noah's day and on down, and then Yeshua mentioning as well. Don't be unequally yoked. Now I know in our society it might be hard to picture what a yoke is. <laughs> Maybe none of us have used a yoke, seen a yoke, touched a yoke. <laughs> I have no idea what it is. And it doesn't have to do with eggs. <laughs> it has to do with cattle. Right? So, if you're plowing your field, back before you had tractors, you'd have two oxen, and you'd put a yoke on them. It was a piece of wood that tied the two of them together. And if they were unequal, if one was stronger than the other, bigger, stronger, whatever, he'd be pulling faster, pulling harder, and they would go in a circle. <laughs> It'd be hard to get anywhere with your trailer pulling behind them, or your, or your plow pulling behind them. You just have circles in the in your field. They have to be equal, pulling equally, strengthened equally, so that you can go straight, make a straight line, and stay on the road. And the same in marriage. To be able to stay on the straight path, on the right path, on the clear path, you need to be equally yoked. And they're able to work better that way too. Their strength will be better that way as well. Even if they're able to maintain, even if the driver is able to maintain some type of straightness with unequal oxen, the strong oxen is the one pulling all the weight. Where if they're equal, they're both sharing the weight and they'll be able to go faster and stronger and longer pulling together. And God calls for that unity to take place, that harmony to take place. And how much more life is happier and, and, and more filling when we're united in what we're doing, whether in a marriage setting 
or in a work setting, right? If you're working for a company that you don't believe in what they're doing, you believe they're ripping people off, you believe they're, you know, unfair to their employees, and, and you know, you don't enjoy working there. You're not in harmony with the mission. But when you're in harmony with what the company's selling, you're all enthusiastic about it. You work better, you work harder, you work cheerfully, and if you're sales, you'll promote it more, and even if you're not in sales, you'll tell other people about it. You'll get other people to work there, you'll tell other people about the product. And the same in marriage. When we're united together, it's so much easier to be happy. I remember uh, when I was a new believer, long before I was in ministry, um, full-time type of rabbinical ministry, and I was working at a job, and uh, I was in forestry, and uh, a bunch of us from the forestry, the team that worked together, we went on a camping trip together, and, and those that were married, they invited their spouses. And there was this one guy, and he was newly married, and he brought his wife, and they had nothing in common. The guy, he worked in the forestry field with us. He loved hunting, he loved fishing, he loved the outdoors, he loved camping, he loved, you know, all that kind of stuff. And she didn't like any of that. She was miserable the whole hike up. She was complaining, and yeah, you know, she didn't have the right shoes. She didn't want to be there. She didn't like carrying the pack. She didn't like sleeping in a tent. She didn't like sleeping in a backpack. She didn't like any of it. She didn't like hunting. She didn't like fishing. She didn't like any of it. They had nothing in common. They had no work experience together. They had no, uh, again, social is his form of leisure, his vacations. They had nothing in common. They met in a bar. They, they enjoyed the same beer or something like that. You know, that was it. That's not happiness. Even, on a, even though they're both secular, even though they're both worldly, it's still not how, joyful. They didn't enjoy the vacation together. They didn't enjoy the outing together. Even that, because they weren't in harmony together. They weren't even equally yoked on that level. How much more on the spiritual, which should encompass our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not part-time believers. We're not once a week for a few hours or uh, time. But when we're totally surrendered to God, come out of Babylon, we're living for the Lord. It encompasses every aspect of our life. How we spend our money, how we eat, how we dress, what we do. Where, how we spend our leisure, what we do on vacations, how we raise our children, every aspect of our lives. Barbara and I love it when, we, when someone asks us for a donation, some kids raising some funds for something, for their school project, something like that, or whatever, some mission group or something like that, and, and, and we'll look at each other and say, do you have a number in mind yet? And we both say, yeah, we got a number in mind. And then we both share it, and so often we have the same exact amount in, in mind. You know, or how much do you think we should purchase that vacuum cleaner for, or that car for, or, or you know, how much do you think this is, or what do you think we should do on vacation? It's so wonderful when we're both in harmony together. In agreement together. Not having to debate it and work it out. And that comes with knowing the Lord and having similar interests, especially on the spiritual level. Brings that harmony together. And that's where the joy of the Lord comes from. That's what he, he wants us to be one. The two will become one flesh. And he wants us to be one with God. And he wants us to understand the oneness of the God family. And understand and experience the being one with him. And we get a little picture of that when we learn how to become one with someone else here on this earth. And one with one another in the congregation and unified together. But when we're not in harmony in marriage, 
Better to not be married. Yeshua said that, you know, they asked him about marriage, and he says, you don't understand, the angels of God are not married and given in marriage. Yet how many, how many, do you think any of the unfallen angels, the godly angels, how many of you think of them are sitting there in heaven going, man, I wish I was a human so I could have gotten married. Hey, boy, I wish I wasn't created as an angel. you think any of them are thinking that? I don't think so. Right? So better to not be married in this earth. That's okay. You know, that's what Paul said. He's able to serve the Lord more. That's okay. Better to have that. It's not the end of the world. Than to be married to the wrong person. The unhappiest people I have found are people, not people who are not mated, but people who are mated but not matched. That is more misery than not being married at all. Because again, there's a constant struggle, daily struggle, daily fight. The Holy Spirit's convicting in one area and the worldly spouse is pulling in the other area. And so again, two animals, not even unequally yoked, it's like a horse and an oxen or like a rabbit and an oxen. You know, they're going in different directions and pulling and pulling in opposite directions. And there's a constant tension there. On the marriage level and on the spiritual level, we need to be in harmony with God and his word and not part of our life for the Lord and part of our life for the world. We won't be happy in that state. It's kind of a miserable state. We're not fully delivered and we're not experiencing the real joy of the Lord in serving him. And nor are we participating in the things of the world. So it's real misery. We're, 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 we're denying the carnal nature that wants to do the things of the world. And you know, we're not enjoying the fruit of, and we're bearing the guilt and we're not bearing the fruit of, of forgiveness and deliverance and victory. It's total misery to be married to the devil, and dating God. We need to forsake the one and be attached to him wholeheartedly. So how did Ezra respond to this news? When I heard this thing, I tore my garments and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. He's overwhelmed. He can't believe it. I've left Babylon. I've come to the promised land. And this is what's happening here? He is so disappointed. So it's ripping out his beard. He's feeling it himself. He's grieving himself. Now Ezra is going to be a great example for us of how the children of God will respond and react to the things in these last days as well. This is the kind of character we have to have. As we see the sins in the world and not just to respond out of anger at it and bitterness and condemnation and looking down on everyone, but he feels it. He feels the pain himself. And God's people will feel the pain of this world. Yeshua felt the pain of this world. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. So others joined him as well. He wasn't alone. 
like Elijah, 7,000 others have not bowed the knee to Baal. There were still those, there were some leaders and there were some people who were astonished and appalled at the sins in the land. And they gathered together, crying and sighing for the sins in the land, like Ezekiel. And they come to him and they join with him in sorrow over this transgression. And as we pray, as we'll see how Ezra prayed, God will draw others to us as well and be a blessing. And this really is the whole story of Ezra. This one sin, this one issue, is really what his whole book is about. Because he only has 10 chapters. So there's this chapter describing it, and then chapter 10 is the solution to the problem. And then that's it. So really, for just four chapters, his trip out of and now Artaxerxes' blessing and giving that final decree, which sets the Daniel 9 prophecy in place, and, and this reformation that he does. And if God didn't use him in this reformation, it might have all been over at that point. Who knows how the Messiah would have come without that, without this restoration taking place. So he starts astonished, and that's how we have to be, and others will draw together with us in these last days, appalled at the sins in the land, of the land. Not just coping with it, not just lowering the standard with them, not just accepting the sins in the land, but become acceptable among God's believers today. It's absolutely amazing how much acceptance of intermarriage and not only marriage with, with unbelievers is becoming accepted, but all kinds of sexual perversions are becoming acceptable among God's people. And we should be like these guys, assembled together because of the transgressions and astonished at it and appalled by it. Verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Very interesting. This is so key. This is how God's people will live in the last days. This is how God's people will pray in the last days. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, there were other people that prayed this way. Daniel prayed this way. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for all these transgressions. Along, that's in chapter 9 also. Just getting ready for the amazing prophecy of when the Messiah would come. And he's repenting for the sins in the land and he's corporately including himself in it. But that's very general. Here, Ezra is corporately repenting for a sin that he wasn't even in the same town. He wasn't even in the same nation when it took place. He did not participate in these sins at all. He did not intermarry. He wasn't even there as a leader that he could take some responsibility that it happened under his leadership. He wasn't there at all. He doesn't know anyone. I doubt he knew anyone there. They all left long before that, five months journey away, he doesn't know any of these guys. And yet he's praying, our iniquities have risen higher than our head and our guilt 
has grown up to the heavens. That's beautiful. He's fully identifying with a people he doesn't even know. He's united in heart and mind. And he's taking their sins, their specific sin, and repenting for it. None of them have asked forgiveness yet. And yet he's asking forgiveness in their behalf. He's interceding for them. And not such in a way, God, they're wicked. I'm so thankful I'm not like them. Please forgive them, punish them, deal with them. Forgive us. He is united with them. Moses did this. Moses, when he came down off the mountain, saw the transgression there. And he threw down the tablets of stone. He prayed, Lord, if you can't forgive them, then blot my name out. He identified with the people. I don't want to go to heaven if you can't forgive, if you can't transform, if you can't change lives. He's willing to die with the people. And talking about Moses, another experience we have in the story of the, of the Exodus. We're traveling through the wilderness, and Balaam is wanting to curse. Balak calls Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And three different times he tries to curse us. And he can't curse us. Blessings come out of his mouth. Even a messianic prophecy comes out of his mouth. Blessings come out. Because we were living godly lives. We were under the protection of God. We were under the umbrella of God. And no curse formed could stand against us. No weapon formed against us could prosper. So what did Balaam do? He gets, I think it was the Moabites, he gets some Moabite women to come into the camp and seduce the men. And they fall for it. Again, the same issue. They fall for it. And a plague breaks out in the land and people are dying left and right. Phineas, Aaron's grandson, Seize one of the leaders of Israel, take one of these Moabite women, and go into a camp, and go into a tent. And he takes a spear and he throws it through both of them at the same time. And it ends the plague. So when we were living godly lives, no curse could come upon us. But when Balaam, under Satan's influence, got us to compromise in sexual sin, A curse comes upon us and a plague comes upon us and many people die. All throughout history is this problem. And we need people like Phineas who are willing to stand up, call sin by its right name, not allow it, not accept it, but also like Ezra, who have such love, who identify with the sinner and take the sins upon themselves. That's what Paul did also. Paul prays, I wish I could become accursed for my brethren. Accursed. Again, cut off from heaven. And that is exactly what Yeshua did. He became the curse for us. He was blotted out for us. He experienced the second death for us. He identified with us 
And in taking our sins upon him, he became the sinner. Like Ezra is praying, as a sinner, our sin. He's identifying with their sin. He's uniting with their sin. He's uniting in their guilt. And he's confessing their sin as if it's his own. That's exactly what Yeshua did. He took our sins upon him and became the guilty one. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In taking our sins, he took the guilt of our sins and the punishment of our sins. Uh, it doesn't let us off the hook. We die in him. We die also. He died and he takes us down with him. As we're just not praying, Lord, forgive me for this sin. Forgive us. They all had to die. We have to die daily. We have to grow daily. And in our death, we die in Yeshua. Our sins die in him. Thus he can make us into new creatures. Thus we can be born again. The old has died, a new can come. So it means to believe. Believe that we died in him. Believe that not only he died for my sins and so now I can continue in sin. No. He died for my sins, taking my sins away from me. You shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. He takes them from us, removes them from us, delivers us from them. I'm crucified with Messiah, with Messiah. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Messiah now lives in me. We die in him. And this is how Ezra is praying. Lord, forgive us. And this is how we will pray. And you can't manifest that. You can't make that up. You can't conjure that up and just start doing it. But as we surrender our selfishness and ask for God to give us his heart, give us his mind, give us his love for the lost, he'll give us such compassion for them that we will identify with them and that we will be willing to die with them and Suffer with them and confess the sin with them. Not again excusing the sin, confessing the sin, calling it sin, but not condemning them. But suffering with them. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty for our iniquities, we, our kings, our Kohanim, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation as it is this day. There were some of the sins that led up to it, with Babylon being able to come in. Now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Small grace of time. We're living in a small grace of time right now. We are so privileged to live in these last days. God has delivered us from so much oppression. We have the freedom now. We have the word of God available to us. We have the ability to live godly lives. 
And here, just like them, they left Babylon, they had freedoms, they're in the country, and yet they're still living sinful lives. And we're no better. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair a house for our God, to rebuild its ruins, to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And God has blessed us tremendously today as well. We have a wall of protection. We have the full word of God. We have the armor of God. We have all prayer. We have heavenly angels willing to work in our behalf and help us and to deliver us, and to stand by us. Now, O our God, what shall we say? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Don't intermarry and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. So again, he's praying, we, we have forsaken your commandments. Even though he wasn't there. Even though he wasn't responsible. Even though he didn't do the same sin. We, and again, in this context, he's specifically talking about this intermarrying as the sin that will keep us from being able to experiencing peace, prosperity, strength, and the good of the land, and an inheritance to pass down to our children's children. It's so key, so important in our lives. One of the best ways to make sure that you never marry the wrong person. Pretty simple formula. To never marry someone you're not equally yoked with. I don't think it's ever been done. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's almost impossible to marry the wrong person, to marry someone you're unequally yoked with if you follow this one simple rule. Never date someone you're not equally yoked with. Hey, it's hard to marry someone you're not married, you're not, you never dated. It can happen. Maybe in a drunken thing, you know, you end up in Las Vegas and next thing you know, you got a marriage license. But other than that, it's pretty rare to get married to someone you never dated, right? So if you never date the wrong person, you'll never marry the wrong person. So don't start off wrong and you won't end up wrong. And the best way to start dating is to first... Be friends, know the person, in a social setting, in a congregational setting, in a friendship setting, in a work setting, where you get to know the person and you know what they're, over time, watching them, listening to them, what their likes are, what their dislikes are, where their faith is, where their heart is. And again, if we're living godly lives and it's showing outwardly, those that are godly will be attracted to it, those that are ungodly won't be. And those that are ungodly but who have a heart that God's moving upon, they'll be attracted to it. And if they're living godly lives, it'll show. And we'll know. It should be pretty easy. So you just take that off the list and just eliminate so many. <laughs> Makes it so easy. And then the dating process is to find out, not if you're already spiritually yoked, you should already know that before you start dating, but then the other parts of compatibility. So don't even ever date someone you're not spiritually 
according to the word of God, equally yoked with. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since, you're, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us? so that there would be no remnant or survivor? Again, it's a crucial issue. Ezra saw it as a crucial issue. God has been very gracious to us in delivering us. Let us not fall back and disappoint him. O oh Lord our God, you are righteous for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. This little section here is very reminiscent of Revelation, again to the last days. Where in the last days, even the righteous will say, who, seeing the Lord coming, who can stand? He's so great, his glory is so wonderful, he's so beautiful, so much higher than we are. That's why we can always have room to grow closer to him. And here he says, who can stand before you? And also talks about left as a remnant. Revelation talks about a remnant. We're without spot, without wrinkle, undefiled, refers to them as virgins. That's not talking in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. But that we're unite, united with the things of this world, with the people of this world. United, again, we have to be friends, we have to work, we have to be able to witness. We have to be able to be an influence, but you're not united in a sense that they're drawing us down and taking us down. God's remnant, pure, undefiled by sin, heart, mind, soul, body, spirit, dedicated to God. Every day, all day, every week, all year from now to eternity. And here again in this passage, he calls it our guilt. So throughout from the beginning of the prayer, through the prayer, and to the end of the prayer, he's identified with the people. And that's how God calls us to be. That type of love for others. No greater love than someone who lays down their life for someone else. Someone might lay down their life for a good man, but how much more so for an enemy? God will give us such love for, even for our enemies. And we'd be willing, as Yeshua, to lay down our eternal life for them. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins. Blot my name out if you can't forgive. That's exactly what Yeshua did. He died, not for the sins of the righteous only, but for the sins of the world. That is true love. You can't manifest that on your own, but God can miraculously give us that type of love. So as we prepare to pray, if you want that type of love, if you want your prayers to be that type of prayers for others, 
Not just praying for them, Lord, bring them repentance, Lord, forgive them, or remove them, or get rid of them, have them move away, get them fired, whatever. But to pray with them, for them, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us in our humanity, forgive us for our sins. Praying for others. You can see the power of God that way, and we'll see the power of God manifested in the next chapter as a result of this type of prayer. This is the remnant that God will have. God's people will be sighing and crying for the abominations done in the land. Not grumbling and complaining about all the sins in the land, but sighing and crying over it, ripping out our beards and our hair and our garments over it. Feeling the pain, feeling the guilt, feeling God's forgiveness and release and deliverance as well. Job prayed this way. He prayed for his sons and daughters. In case they might have sinned, he offered sacrifices in their behalf. And so if you want to be that type of person in a moment when we pray, ask God to cleanse you from your selfish sins and your self-absorbed sins and looking at it as a us and them, but ask God to give you his heart, his mind, his attitude, his type of love for the lost. Secondly, if you currently are or in the past or unequally yoked, and even if it was in the past, we're united together, the two become one flesh, and it affects us. Even if they're divorced or dead or whatever, it still affects us. And so I ask God to forgive you. Ask God to cleanse you of the effects of that. Ask God to redeem the time. Ask him to work it out together for good, even though it was wrong and a mistake and maybe you didn't know better at the time, but ask God to deal with it and cover it in his blood, his sacrifice. Third, if you've contemplated, maybe dated or thought about a relationship with someone that you're unequally yoked with, Again, that's normal, that's natural, it's the carnal nature. But we don't want to be part of the carnal nature. We don't want to be like the world. We want to be transformed, filled with God's nature. As his children, children, sons and daughters of God. In a moment when we pray, ask God to deliver you from that. Deliver you from that temptation. Now and into the future, to deliver you and set you free. So you don't yield to the influence, so you don't yield to that pressure, but that you'll stand for the right and accept his peace. Fourth, if you're not married and you've been discouraged over that and that's been a, a, a longing in your heart, I encourage you to surrender it to God and allow God to pick, give you the ability to wait upon the Lord. Because if we don't wait and we marry the wrong person and God had someone planned for you in the future, you'll miss out on that plan. And not only will you miss out on that perfect plan, but then that person that was meant for you, you get left hanging and doesn't get to experience God's original perfect plan for him or her. Wait upon the Lord to bring it in his time. Maybe you're not ready yet. Maybe you're not spiritually at the point to be equally yoked with them yet. And God's just waiting on you to surrender more, to give, more, to give yourself more, to be filled more with his Holy Spirit. Maybe he's waiting on you. 
said, are you waiting on him? Or maybe again, it's not his will for you in this life, and that's okay. We're only going through this life a short period of time. She said, it's better to enter into heaven having our eyes plucked out than to have our eyes and live in this world and miss out on heaven. Better to be in heaven and never been married than to be married in this life to the wrong person and end up missing heaven as a result. Or even if we don't, the influence it would be upon our children or upon neighbors or upon other people of a bad witness. We might make it through, but they might not. That's why I mentioned the generational problem that takes place. Physical, generational, but also the spiritual and influential generations that we have upon other people. Stand for the right. And so if that's been something you struggle with, surrender it to the Lord, be at peace, wait upon him, be married to him, and let him share you with someone else if he wills at the right time, according to his will and his timing. And in heaven he'll have better than anything we can ever imagine or dream or think of here on this earth, whatever that will be. So wait upon him. Fifth, if there's some area in your life where you're spiritually attached to this world, maybe not unequally yoked marriage-wise, but unequally yoked with your, your living a, a life of hypocrisy. You're professing to believe in God, and yet you're in the world. You're with the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the otherites. It's time to come out of that. You've come out of Babylon, but you're living with the Canaanites. It's time to come out of the Canaanites, too, and to live fully with God. And so if that applies to you, if there's some sin in your life, some habit, some area, one area, any areas, however many areas, surrender them to the Lord and break away from the things of this world and live fully for God. So if any of those areas apply to you, let us pray together. And let God do his work. Or maybe there's some other area God's been speaking to your heart and mind about, whether from this chapter or something else. He's been impressing your mind. That's good too. Let God do his work. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name and we thank you, Lord, in your mercy and your love for us. You've given us this warning over and over and over again down through the ages. And so, Lord, continue to work in our lives and in our minds. Give us clearness of thought in heart and mind. Take out our hearts of stone. Take out our worldly, fleshly hearts drawn to the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And give us your eyes, your mind, your heart, your patience, the ability to wait upon you, to trust in you, to love you with every aspect and soul of our being completely and unreservedly and use us for your honor and your glory. May your light shine through us. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our past mistakes. Forgive us for our yielding to temptations. Forgive us for compromising with the world. Shield us into the future. Give us a heart of, a strong heart of faith that resists temptation, that chooses you, that walks in your power. Cleanse us through the blood of the Messiah and fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.